also authoritative in his works. When he did signs and wonders, he showed not by a, just a sleight of hand or a trick here and there or something that would draw your attention in a trivial manner, but indeed he showed himself authoritative over nature itself. He showed himself to be Yahweh who calls out over the waters, who holds in his hand the power of the most chaotic forces of this universe. Indeed, the raging sea is stilled by a word of his command. So by these two measures, Jesus has showed himself to be the Son of God. John the Baptist himself testified to Jesus' authority. His baptism, his ministry was significant. It drew the attention of the religious leaders. They sent a contingency to John and said, By what authority do you do these things? Could it be, you can't help but wonder as you read between the lines, whether or not these, the religious elite were considering that the dawn of the Messiah was, was upon them. And so they asked those types of questions. John the Baptist says that I am not the one who was prophesied, but my baptism exists to show the one to come. And in John's gospel, right at the beginning, right after he said those words, he pointed to Jesus Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thus, by these measures, Jesus has not only brought the kingdom, but he's demonstrated that he has the authority to do the same. He testified to his authority. John testified to him. He testified to his authority by his teaching, by his signs and wonders, and finally by prophecy fulfilled of the old covenant. As we mentioned in last message in this series, every step of Christ's sandal-shodden feet was a fulfillment of language in the old covenant. If you just had eyes to see and ears to hear it unfolding before you. So, beyond a measure of any uh, shadow of any doubt whatsoever, Christ has preached with clarity the message of the kingdom and he's demonstrated his authority to do it. So now, what of those who refuse to listen? Well, for them, a different message would now be a champion, would be trumpeted from Christ's own words. And that would be a message of justice, of judgment, of Christ showing his authority yet one more way, of bringing destruction, of bringing punishment, of bringing a reckoning and a day of the Lord upon those who refuse to bow to his lordship. So that is something of the context in which these two parables are echoed this morning. Note in this section that there's a rare reference to the kingdom in Matthew's gospel. The kingdom is referred to in this section as the kingdom of God. That's relatively rare in Matthew's gospel. Usually, he refers to the kingdom of God by a different term, the kingdom of heaven. Yet in Matthew 21, 43, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, in typical Hebraic form, that term kingdom of heaven is kind of like a Jewish way of speaking. Sometimes the Jews, out of reverence, would choose a different word than God himself. Instead of uttering Yahweh, they might utter like the author of Hebrews does, the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a term in the Latin called periphrasis, or two words that make me sound smart. Periphrasis and circumlocution. It means simply to speak around something or use a different term out of reverence. So not to state it uh, straight out, Yahweh, but to say, for instance, that the right hand of the majesty on high was a reverent way to speak culturally in Jewish terms. There's an exception in this chapter. Matthew's gospel 
uh, chooses to be more forthright, or Matthew in his gospel records Christ's words in this instance as more forthright and direct. He says the kingdom of God straight, in a straightforward manner. There's only four references that I could find in Matthew to the kingdom of God, and all of them are in the context of those who oppose it. The 31 other references are the more common kingdom of heaven. Thus, we see even by this detail in the text that Jesus' most explicit and direct references to his kingdom and authority are reserved for his detractors. And so the response of the hearers, even the response of the hearers, testifies to the authority of the kingdom of God. And we see in the close here, in the introduction to this message, that after he got finished, uh, that after he was finished delivering these two parables, and it started to dawn on the hearers what was being said to them, it says in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So all the way through this a section of Jesus' delivery of the kingdom of God, there are moments and details to underscore his teaching ministry came with authority and clarity. Not even the hard hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, who were those who were listening in to this section of his teaching, not even they could avoid the authority of Jesus' own words. Their attitude of defiance immediately fulfilled the prophecy that those who are listening to him right now would be the agents of his own death. He had just prophesied by way of parable in verse 39 that they took him and threw him out. These are the uh, tenants, the evil tenants, the vineyard, and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? The irony is, is that those who answered that question were the very ones who would take him and destroy him. This was not unbeknownst to Christ. This was not against the plan of God. Indeed, these were the events predestined beforehand that would take place as the saints prayed in Acts chapter 4. And here it was in the course of Jesus' ministry that every moment of his preaching ministry was attested by the exclamation point of authority, whether it's the reaction of the hearers or it is the marvelous working of his own hand or the inscrutable wisdom of his own teaching. So that's an introduction to this morning's, the, some of the weight and context of our message this morning as we consider these two vineyard parables. I mentioned the title is called Vineyard Syllabus. A syllabus is just a uh, record of lessons or a schedule for what to learn in a course or in a, a, a subject of study. This morning, I asked myself the question, what we might learn by way of our own understanding from these two parables. And so a heading for you, lessons from the vineyard parables of Matthew 21. Perhaps four questions can be answered this morning. Number one, and answered in context. Number one, we can ask ourselves, who are the tenants? Who are those who tend the vineyard? Secondly, we can ask, what is the vineyard? Thirdly, who is the son and cornerstone referred to in the second parable? And fourthly, as Christ closes this section, what are kingdom fruits? Who are the tenants? What is the vineyard? Who is the son and cornerstone? And what are kingdom fruits? The reason I've chosen to take these two parables as a matching set is because it seems to me that the second expounds and expands the first. 
They both have the same setting, namely a vineyard. Yet the second one is even more specific. First of all, let us consider this question as we ponder the meaning of these parables. Who are the tenants? Reading again uh, Matthew 21, 28, we get the introduction and the setting and the characters in these parables. It says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. So in the first parable, the tenants are just two individuals, two representative individuals who go and tend the vineyard. Uh, one, uh, a son, the first son, answers him. He says, I will not. So he refuses to obey the order of the master, of his father, and does not go into the field. It says in verse 29, afterward he changed his mind and went. And then here's tenant number two in verse 30. And he went to the other son, that is the man or the father, went to the other son and said the same. And, went, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to, to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So here we have two sons, the first and the second, who are distinguished by their answer and their actions. And secondly, we have in the text their identity as tax collectors and prostitutes on the one hand, and secondly, those who are listening to the parable, Jesus addresses them by the term you, those in the second person. And we know these to be from the context, at least the chief priests and the elders in verse 23, and also it adds the category of Pharisee at the end here in verse 45. So first of all, who are the tenants? Number one, there are three different types of people, if you will, that are tenants in the field. And in the first parable, we have two types. First is the repentant Jewish lowlifes. The repentant Jewish lowlifes, for lack of a better term. Secondly, we also have the self-willed Jewish leaders. First of all, the repentant Jewish lowlifes. This is the uh, first son. The first son who says, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and went. So what does this son represent? This son represents a sinner who uh, his attitude and response to God is obstinance and rebellion, and he knows uh, something of his own sin. It's clearly inferred in that he is among the lowlifes, the despised, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. So he starts out rebellious with rebellious attitudes towards the Lord. He does not feign, he does not fake obedience, he does not say sure and not do it anyway, he does not even make a good attempt to be a hypocrite, he simply says, I will not obey you. Later, he changes his mind, we'll find in due course that change his mind in verse 29 in the Greek is synonymous with repentance. First he says, I will not, then he changes his mind and he goes in and tends the vineyard the repentant Jewish lowlife. Can you relate to that individual? In 1 Corinthians 6, turn with me briefly if you will. 
While Jesus is speaking here in a Jewish context as he was sent primarily to speak to and to reach the uh, ethnic people of God with his message, Paul expands or he applies this concept of lowlifes. <coughs> and while the uh, uh, ethnic identity is not so important as we see um, in the context here, we do find that the idea of low life or a sinner is one that has universal application. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, we have these words. I'll back up to 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, so that would fit well with the category of prostitutes in Matthew 21, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So in that sense, in the lowlife sense, and in the sinner sense, we can identify with this first category of tenant. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says, Such were some of you. Just like those who told Christ, I will not go, but then they repented, they changed their mind. And while Paul is clear that people like tax collectors who are cheats and prostitutes who are sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says the tax collectors and prostitutes believed on him, and they, ironically, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They will go into the kingdom of God before you. And verse 31, why? Because they repented. They were tax collectors and prostitutes, but they repented of their ignorance, their obstinance, their rebellion, and their sin, and they obeyed the Lord. This is the first category of tenants. The second category is the self-willed Jewish leaders in the first parable. These were the ones who said, yes, I will go. They thought themselves in good relationship and in good standing with Father God. It says in verse 30, and he went to the other son and said the same. He answered, second son says, I go, sir, but did not go. This refers, I submit to you, to those who are hearing this parable. These are the chief priests of verse 23 and the elders. These are the Pharisees of verse 45. And even today, all who are like-minded with them. They are those who we identified before by three categories. The self-important, the self-righteous, and the self-serving. Perhaps we could add a fourth category, self-willed. Notice anything in common in all those four Self, that's correct. These are the ones who are self-centered. They justify themselves. They, are, uh, they serve themselves. They see themselves as most important. They do not see themselves as sinners, but they see themselves as having position, negotiation, uh, ability to negotiate and leverage with the Lord. These are the ones who in the uh, verses prior would have the audacity to approach a man who had just done miraculous things, moved heaven and earth to demonstrate his authority, his perfection and his power, and they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? 
when it has been fully attested to them by his own revelation that they ought to submit and bow to him because this is the man who speaks and calls the waves of the sea. This is the man who heals the blind and the lame in the temple as he has just done. This is the man who curses the fig tree and instantly he has the power to cut off the life from that creature, that living thing, that creation. Why? Because he is its creator in the first place. Only the self-worshipper, only the one who supposes himself to be in a position over God, to judge him, to question him, would be in this second category of tenant, which says, I go, sir, which means I'm in good standing. I'm a faithful son. I will uh, certainly be in the good graces of Father God. But what happens? He does not go. What does go represent? He does not acknowledge that he's a sinner in need of grace. He does not identify with the lowlife, the prostitute, the tax collector, those who Paul called out by their sins, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and so on. He doesn't see himself by any of those standards or identities. Instead, he sees himself as a self-important and self-made, self-acclaimed individual who in the end will be judged by Christ, not saved. This, the primary audience expands from the chief priests and elders who are mentioned at the beginning to include the Pharisees in verse 45. And these represent the leadership and the position of influence and those who feel like they are in good standing, but they, grad, they glean their assurance from something other than the gospel. Well, there's a third category <coughs> of tenants, and this is where we find ourselves if you are a repentant Gentile, and this is so encouraging. As we continue to read into the next, uh, into the next parable, the vision or the truth is expanded. It says in verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them. So these are like the tenants number two, those who disrespect even the son of God. They see him, and they kill him to steal his inheritance and so on. And then they come to the owner, and then uh, the question is asked, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, verse 40, what will he do to these tenants? And they said to him, and as those who are listening answer his question correctly, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the first fruits in their seasons. Ironically, the priests, the elders, and the Pharisees just called themselves wretches without realizing it. Because obviously they had somebody else in mind rather than themselves. They didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw others as sinners. It says, they'll put these wretches to a miserable death. And notice this phrase, and let out the vineyard to other tenants. Really, other tenants? Who might that be? Jesus goes on to identify them when he says, Therefore, verse 43, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. These are the Gentile outsiders. There is a mystery to the gospel. Up to this point in redemptive history, God's primary work and revelation had been restricted to one small ethnic people. But this was about to change. In the book of Ephesians, Paul, as the chief apostle to the Gentiles, explains this mystery and his role in it by saying, verse 1, 
For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of who? On behalf of you Gentiles. Who is this? That, that's this category of people that Paul is referring to. Well, I submit to you, Matthew 21, 43, in the words of Christ, they are identified as those whom the kingdom of God is given. The people who will produce its fruits, the unlikely outsiders. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, again, Ephesians 3, 2, that was given to me for you, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Praise the Lord. You and I as Gentile outsiders can be tenants in the vineyard. Yet there remains a word of caution for us. Romans, particularly in chapter 11, tells the Gentile outsider to remain in a position of humility. All who find themselves in the favored conditions of God's grace, laboring in His vineyard, endeavoring to produce, to reap the fruits of the Gospels, must remain humble. They must never lose this truth that they are wretches save for the grace of God, that they once were the lowlifes, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. They were the adulterers, the idolaters, the revilers, the homosexuals, those outside of God's law, committing with habitual, uh, habitually blatant sin against His word and truth and way of righteousness. They remember that so they no, do not become arrogant they remember, and we even more so as Gentiles grafted in that we were not of the natural olive shoot, but we were the wild branches, as it were, that are grafted in. There is a great application point for all of us to take from this lesson of who are the tenants this morning. Notice that the self-willed answered Jesus correctly. When Jesus brought these rhetorical questions at the end of each parable, it's striking that the priests, the Pharisees, and the elders, those who were obstinate and hard of heart, the self-willed Jewish leaders, they actually answered his question correctly. They said the first guy actually produced fruits in the vineyard. That is the son who repented and actually worked. They said in answer to his second question, what will they do? What will the father do when the wretches put to a miserable death his own son who goes to verify the uh, integrity of the tenants, well, they will throw them out and will give it to someone else, other tenants who will produce their fruit in seasons. Notice that the obdurate, the heart of heart, they answered the question correctly. Yet, they remained heart of heart. How could this be? Because at the end of Jesus' instructions, they certainly didn't repent. Verse 46, it says, although they were seeking to arrest Him, they feared the crowds. That is an unbelievable phrase. They should have bowed before the Lord. They had just testified against themselves and proceeded to make plans to kill the very man who just told them there were going to be wicked tenants that kill me. 
but that stone will become one of judgment that will crush and break everyone who is self-willed, self-righteous, and self-made, and yet they go on in their sin. This is truly a frightening a situation. How could it be, we ask, that they answer the question correctly in theory and yet continue in their hardness of heart? Well, I submit to you that in their mind as they were answering the questions, they had someone else in mind. Uh, they were not taking to heart the lessons of the parables. They were not letting the Holy Scriptures search the depths of their own soul. They no doubt had another sinner in mind when they answered Jesus' parables as they did. And how often do we do the same thing? How often do we shout our amens, as it were, to a sermon? Or we nod our head with affirmation when we hear the Word of God with some other sinner in mind. Oh, that's a great message for this wicked culture. That's a great message for that relative I know that is a real washed-up loser. That's a great message for that guy who uh, got so under my nerves last week. It is very easy for us to do this. Affirm truth and theory for someone else. But the call of the parable is for us to let it search ourselves. We ought to submit ourselves as the object of the confrontation of the gospel first and only when we are humbly broken, convicted, and repentant are we a worthy vessel to declare it to others that they might and call them that they might repent as well. Learn the lessons. May we learn the lessons of the vineyard parables of Matthew 21. The true and faithful tenants are the humble ones who let the gospel search themselves thoroughly and don't avoid it. Secondly, what is the vineyard? In the teaching context of Matthew's gospel, as we mentioned briefly in introduction, planting analogies are used again and again to help us understand something of the kingdom of God. If we move backward just a little bit in the text, we find in Matthew 21 that Jesus had cursed the fig tree. He says in the morning in verse 18, he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. We mentioned in a prior message that the, uh, symbolically uh, there is something significant here. A fig tree typically produces its figs first and leaves second. So if a fig tree has leaves, the assumption is it also has fruit. But there's something of a pretentious display in view here. Jesus goes to the tree, seeing it has leaves, assuming it has fruit, sees it does not have fruit, and curses the tree. Now, it's not that Jesus learned something that God the Father didn't know already and could have shown him and so on. It wasn't that Jesus was interacting with daily affairs uh, just as a normal human being would and then out of frustration curses the tree. No, this is a spiritual truth conveyed here, that there are those who show a pretentious display of fruit, but upon closer inspection, there is none. So you see, there's lessons like this and messages like this in the gospel that help us understand this idea of vineyard. One concern and one value in the kingdom of God is uh, clear, is certainly clear in these analogies, that there is an expectation and a priority placed on fruitfulness. Because the fig tree was unfruitful, it was cursed. This was a picture of greater spiritual truth. 
because the tenants were fruitless and their efforts did not produce the fruits of the kingdom, uh, they were cursed and it would be given to then better stewards. So we see an idea of fruitfulness connected to these ideas of planting. Earlier in the text in Matthew 13, there are a number of parables that use the language of plantings or fields, cultivation, husbandry, sowers, seeds, and so on. Uh, Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, evil one comes, snatches it away. And we know the rest of these examples. And he closes with uh, the seed born on good soil. Verse 23, it says he bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. So again, fruitfulness is in view. What is a vineyard? It's a context whereby the faithful kingdom steward produces fruit to the kingdom of God. But it is also a context where others fail in so doing and are judged. So we start to get a picture here. All through Matthew's gospel, there's references like these. That's the teaching context that helps us understand what is referred to by vineyard. But let me expand it just a bit and turn you to Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is also picking up not just language from his prior teachings, but language from his prior teachings in Old Covenant literature as well. As we go back to the Old Testament, we see this language of vineyard is presented to us as a parallel framework in Old Covenant revelation to reinforce the symbolic concept of vineyard. Let us read here uh, the first few verses of Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So we see this idea again, there's a structure, there's a clear intent, there's a predestined purpose, there's also a desire, there's a goal in mind that there would be fruitfulness of a certain type and quality of produce. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard, verse 5. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So we see here a framework that is already established to help us understand vineyard. A vineyard is a reference, therefore, to God's people, those who are in covenant with him, who are set apart by specific ceremonial religious, national, even geographic boundaries and delineations. When God uh, speaks in this way, prophetically and poetically, He talks about He set up a hedge. He detailed boundaries. He, He gave a tower, a place of establishment, 
a government, an order is in view. He gave a commandment or a law, and there's an aim to be fruitful and produce fruit. And these were the terms and conditions then that metaphorically describe a covenant people. They're set apart by ceremonial, religious, national, and geographic boundaries. And this is part of their identity, at least provisionally at this time, as the covenant people of God. Yet in spite of all of this, they do not produce fruit. And when they do not, what is, what is to be expected? Judgment. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 5. That's the context of Matthew 21. A lot of parallels there. So let's move to a third point under what is the vineyard then and this concept of provisional grace. Provisional grace and this idea of vineyard must be understood and appreciated to grasp the lessons of the vineyard parables. Any revelation of God received and available to sinners is utterly undeserved. My point of application here is to say that once we understand something about God, His creation, even as it exists totally independent of the Word, we already have a revelation for which we are accountable. There is a provisional grace of God revealing Himself to us, His terms and conditions like what Romans 1 says, His divine power and Godhead are now available for us and we are accountable for that truth. He has, through that means, even creation itself, that is to say, set up a boundary for us or set up conditions for us that we are accountable to Him for. What will we do with that information? Any revelation of God available to sinners is utterly undeserved and requires an accounting. We, you and me, though Gentiles, may fall by the same principal error as the hearers of Christ's parables in this section. We may be blessed by the provisional grace of hearing the Word of God in a sermon, growing up in a Christian family, attending a Christian church, participating to some degree in a Christian culture. There is a vineyard, in other words, in our experience, with fences, with a tower, with a vat, with vines, represented by these provisional graces. Someone has told us the truth. We have a Bible on our shelf. We maybe grew up in a Christian family. We attended a church from time to time. We're surrounded by a culture, uh, relatively speaking, to some degree, of believers. But the Bible reminds us that these alone do not save. There is no cultural, birthright, or environmental citizenship in the kingdom of God, ultimately speaking. There is no assurance by being in a context, an environment, association, a family, or a church. There is no ultimate assurance of salvation in those things alone. There is only citizenship by conversion. Repent of your sins. See yourself as the publican, uh, the tax collector, the prostitute. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Enter into the field in joyful, worshipful, dutiful obedience as one saved by grace through faith alone. This is the message of the vineyard. And it is one that we need to hear and well applies to us. We may be surrounded by trappings that we lean on for assurance and are not actually foundational to the faith. 
true kingdom citizens and the kingdom king true kingdom citizenship is through conversion repentance and faith as we will find uh, in our final point of this message the fruits of the kingdom of god number three this morning who is the sun and cornerstone the answer ought to be obvious to us in one word jesus who is the sun and cornerstone jesus as we read there's a little bit more depth and detail, though, to the context. We'll explore it just a little. As we read, Jesus talk about uh, these two concepts. Or, uh, the first appears in verse 37. Finally, He sent His Son to them. Who did God the Father, the owner of the vineyard, send to the unjust tenants uh, uh, to bring the message of truth? He sent His Son. He sent Jesus Christ, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin into this world, to walk among us and to preach the message of the kingdom of God. And here he is delivering in this very parable the record of history where God intervened with his message of truth to seek and to save that which was lost. He sent his son. And to some degree, the wicked tenants recognize this. And they say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. You see their culpability is raised even higher. They are guilty for crucifying the Lord of glory, which they eventually did, and actually just a few short days. Now, beyond this term son, Jesus uses another uh, concept or analogy, picture, metaphor to describe himself. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He says in verse 44 of this stone, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Who is the sun and cornerstone? It is Jesus Christ. First of all, we see in the history of some Talmudic literature, which just refers to the historical study of Jewish uh, tradition and so on, there are a couple of cultural references which heighten the impact of Jesus' words. The Jews at this time and beyond, they often referred to their leaders, their rabbis, that is their elders, their scribes, and their Pharisees. They referred to them often as builders. They were the ones who took the constituent parts of the nation or the national identity, like the law, and they expounded and enforced them and taught them, and with these basic parts, the society would thrive and grow. Thus, the rabbis and leaders were seen as the builders of the society, of the socio-religious political unit, if you will. And thus, when Jesus says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, it carries weight, does it not? The stone that those who are actually charged and took upon themselves the duty of building society the very essential, fundamental, foundational piece of success in that endeavor, they rejected. They threw away. They did not take from the quarry, as it were. And thus, the builders did. The scribes, the leaders, the political elite, the elders and the Pharisee, they did exactly that when they crucified Christ, the Lord of glory. Yet the irony and the glory is that this stone that the builders rejected has become 
the chief cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Scribes, Pharisees, elders, leaders, priests will not get the glory or the credit for building the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's doing. It's as good as done. He has become the chief cornerstone, and it is marvelous, glorious in our eyes. Thus, the cultural references add weight to Jesus' teaching. On the website this week, under further study, there's additional references that speak of this crushing or grinding into powder or falling and being broken into pieces. It associates that kind of language with actual stonings. Thus, it seems that Jesus is choosing language strategically to communicate the weight of judgment that will fall upon those who reject Him. It will be like a stoning where someone is executed for a capital crime, where they are thrown off a precipice and dashed upon the rocks. And if that doesn't do the trick, a stone the size of a millstone or something of the like will crush them. It's dramatic, graphic judgment language. Equal to the language he's already used in Matthew 18, when he described those who'd have the audacity to deceive the little ones. He says it would be better for them if a great millstone were fastened around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus does not minimize and pulls no punches when he comes to judgment language for those who have heard the word of the kingdom and remain hard of heart. He tells them what to expect. Expect a millstone fastened around your neck as and thrown in, into the sea. He says, expect a stoning, as it were, where you're dashed upon a rock and broken in pieces, or worse yet, a stone falls upon you and crushes you entirely. Not only do we have cultural references here related to the idea of sun and, and cornerstone, we also have Old Testament references we won't explore them in too much depth this morning. Just briefly, I'll mention, and then you can study later on your own if you choose. Mark read one reference that Jesus cites directly from Psalm 118, verse 22, and around there. And in this uh, text, we see this stone that was rejected that has become a chief cornerstone was a prophetic reality in Old Testament literature. We also see in Daniel 2, 34-35, a stone of a different type. This is a stone that is cut out of a mountain. It's the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is a stone that increases and gathers mass. And as it moves forward, incrementally, it gains more and more power and influence, and it grinds into powder and sends all other authorities into the wind like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. This is the picture of stone that is also referred to in this passage, language from the Old Testament that is drawn upon. Zechariah 12.2 is similar, also Isaiah 8.14-15. Thus, when we take these references into view and we ask ourselves, what can we learn from the vineyard parables when Christ refers to Himself as a son and a cornerstone and the uh, work of that cornerstone, the weight and the judgment implications of that cornerstone, we see that the context indicates a comprehensive reckoning. An individual is accountable for his sin and can trip, as it were, over that stone and be broken. That stone, that is to say, confronts him in his autonomous futility 
Every individual will be broken on the stone of Christ if he does not repent. But secondly, there's a dashing of a different sort that also seems to be in view, where national and cultural edifices above the knowledge of Christ receive judgment. And in this way, it's like the crushing stone from above or that expanding stone rolling in Daniel, where the invincible power of Christ's kingdom eventually dashes every tower of Babel, every scheme of man, every nation, every culture, every power that has exalted itself above the knowledge of God. So the picture is extremely conclusive, decisive, and complete. The everyone will bow to Christ. May it be by repentance, because if our knees do not bow willingly before His Lordship in this life, they will be broken by that crushing stone in the next, if not sooner. Thirdly, this morning, who is the sun and cornerstone? There are prophetic references, cultural references, Old Testament references, and prophetic references as well. Jesus, as we've briefly mentioned, foretells His own experience. Much like what the prophets of old experienced, and even more so when they came delivering the Word of God and they were abused for it, Jesus now, the final and greatest prophet, Jesus, the Son of God Himself, will receive at the hands of the tenants the worst abuse yet. It says that when the tenants saw the Son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill Him and have His inheritance. And in a few short days this would happen. This joins the record, the catalog of Jesus' repeated prophecy of what would soon befall him. In Matthew 19, I'm sorry, 20, verse 17, he was going up to Jerusalem. He took his 12 disciples aside on the way and he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Again, same two categories. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Again and again in the text, Jesus has prophesied similarly. In chapter 17, he said, The Son of Man, verse 22, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. Chapter 16, verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. When Jesus prophesies his own death, it is very clear that these conditions did not come as a surprise to him and were anything but a defeat. The great message in Matthew 21 is how the tables are completely turned in this rebellious act of the tenants. Listen again to 42. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone imagery conveyed in this parable parable, uh, further demonstrates that Jesus' rejection and crucifixion will only serve to validate, glorify, and enthrone Him. What these wicked men have uh, determined in their heart to do to destroy the Son, it will only establish Him as the chief cornerstone. 
He will become the foundation of the gospel, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, the sufficient sacrifice, the eternal intercessor. He will be the answer. He will be our hope. And He will be raised from the dead. And He will rule and reign at the right hand of the Father forever. He will become the cornerstone. He has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And one of the reasons the work of Christ is so marvelous is that He takes the work of evil men to destroy the Son of God and uses it as a means to validate, glorify, and enthrone the Son of God and establish Him as the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone by which every other living stone within the church is fitted. He is the one who establishes us, who declares the terms of righteousness, who provides for our salvation, who is the foundation and point of reference for all of the Christian life. And for everyone else, He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Yet He is never moved But all who try to move him are broken and crushed to powder. This is the Jesus that is self-revealed in the parables of the vineyard in Matthew 21. Finally, and in closing this morning, perhaps one of the most important questions we could ask is this. What are kingdom fruits? If we don't know what those are, if we are not producing them, that is a frightening eventuality indeed. After all, verse 43, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Again, we have heard just briefly in verse 41 that the message is, from those who answered his question rightly, he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. It seems that fruitfulness is of utmost importance. So what is The fruit, or what does kingdom fruit look like? How do we produce its fruits? How do we know when we are? Well, in the same context, I submit to you there are three categories in brief. And the first is repentance and faith. We go back to verse 28, and we notice the fruitfulness of the first tenant. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind. There's a Greek word, meta, which means to change. Metamalomi or something like that, metanoia, are two terms in the Greek that refer to repentance. It's a change of heart, it's a change of mind. The son was evil in his initial response, but something happened. He had a fundamental reorientation in his soul. As we look at the greater context, in this passage and others, of what does the Bible mean by repentance and faith? Again, the same word in the Greek is used in verse 32 when we read, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. Earlier it says that the collectors, tax collectors, and the prostitutes believed Him. So these are the fruits of the kingdom. Repentance and belief, or faith. Repent and have faith. And in the context, perhaps this is a good definition. The fruit of the kingdom, repentance and faith, is a change of heart and action coinciding with a a persuasion and confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ. Again, what is repentance and faith? It's a change of heart and action 
coinciding with the persuasion of and confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ. When the gospel comes proclaimed to us, if we are persuaded and we have confidence in its truth, the effect is a change of heart and coinciding action, and these are kingdom fruits. What else do they look like? Well, again, in the context, we back up and Jesus prophesies of those who are in the kingdom. He says that, truly I say to you, verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So notice again the connection between works and faith in this text. So kingdom fruits, what are they? Repentance, faith, and then works. What are kingdom works? Well, in the application of the fig tree parable, Jesus identifies this fruit and works as the effect of prayerful and faithful gospel labor. When we repent, when we turn to the Lord, when there is that corresponding change of action because we have confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel, we repent and confess our sins and we believe and submit to His holy word. And that will produce works in us. It will show itself to have effect through prayerful and faithful gospel labors. And finally, in this same passage, what does kingdom fruit look like? Well, Jesus identified it and commended it in the hearts and in the voices of the little children when He said, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. You see, in verse 15, when the leaders, the elders, the chief priests scoffed, something was happening among another party. It says, when the chief priests, in verse 15, and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, uh, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, why do you hear? Or do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The children of The children beheld the wonderful things that Christ has done, and they broke out in spontaneous praise, Hosanna to the Son of David. The chief priests, they questioned the scribes. They saw the same things. They heard the same gospel, and they questioned Christ. They remained unconvinced. The crowds that preceded this moment had already echoed the children, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They extolled him as their Savior, their king and the prophet. It says in verse 11, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Galilee. So what are kingdom fruits? Well, just in the immediate context, they are repentance, faith, works is the effect of faith, and worship, the sacrificial laying down of one's life represented in the cloaks of the crowds, the ascribing of glory to His holy name uh, represented by the crowds and the children, and declaring the truth, ascribing to Him glory. He is the Savior, the King, and the Prophet. Now this contrast, the contrast between that response and the end of our section here couldn't be more stark. Verse 45 again. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that He was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest Him, they feared the crowds because they held Him to be a prophet. In the end... Those that heard these parables and did not repent, were not convinced, did not take Him to heart. It was another sovereign that they worshipped. They did not fear God, they feared the crowds. 
It was to the sovereignty of society, their tradition, their ideas, themselves, the crowds, and public opinion to which the self-willed and the self-important, the self-righteous, and the self-serving bowed. They did not bow before the cornerstone son, Christ. May we learn the lessons of the vineyard parables, and may we not respond as they did. When I was studying for this message, I just read this great quote from John Gill. I want to close with it today. As we ponder the lessons learned from the vineyard parables of Matthew 21, may we echo words like this, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He is higher than the kings of the earth. He is superior to angels and the chiefest among ten thousands of his saints. He is exalted above all creatures, angels, and men who by the Jewish builders was rejected, was despised, and scarce allowed to be worthy of the name of a man. This is the Lord's doing. This stone is laid in the building by him. The rejection of him is an is according to his determinate counsel and foreknowledge, and the exaltation of him above every name is owing to him, and he is by and at his own right hand and is marvelous in our eyes, in the eyes of all the saints, there being in all this such a wonderful display of the wisdom, grace, mercy, power, and faithfulness of God. Amen. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have preserved the teaching of the rock, the cornerstone, and your Son, Jesus Christ, as to the conditions of the kingdom for us. And we are even more thankful that He went to the cross on our behalf. Help us to see ourselves in light of the gospel truth, that we may not respond as the proud Pharisee, as the arrogant leader, but instead as the humble lowlife, the wretched sinner, who sees himself in light of truth and knows that his only hope is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his Lord. And it's in that name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.